This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Speak grace, speak truth, restart. This is the kingdom. You're listening to the End Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaigns church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon lines, my play cousin, the right reverend Christopher Butler. And I'm serious this time. Chris is back with us today after a long campaign. How's it going, Chris? Oh, I am doing well. Uh, things are good. Good stuff, man. I know campaigns take a lot out of you physically, emotionally, and everything else, man. And so we're glad to have you back so soon. I know the uh, the folks missed you, man. Uh, how's the family doing? What's new in Chicago? Uh, you know, family's doing well. Uh, we are, uh, you know, Chicago has a, a in the off-year election, we have two elections. So uh, we go straight from the sort of midterm piece right into our uh, municipal elections, which are going to be uh, very exciting here. So uh, you know, it it was a very draining campaign, but so much work to do, uh, and you know, just looking forward to getting back involved in some of that. Good stuff, good stuff. Yeah, that's an interesting way to do it. Well, I'll tell you, man, I, it's as the heat has turned up in the city of Atlanta. Unfortunately, my AC went out, and the AC in my house has been out for almost over a month now. And I'm being told that it's due to supply chain issues and we're waiting for parts. The sad thing is, it's the upstairs unit and the downstairs unit. So I'm just out there. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm in a I'm in a tough place, my brother. Uh, but me and the family are trying to get through it. We're, we were actually uh, in Illinois, in, in Chicago, not too long ago, man. But we've had a pretty good summer. But it's been a hot one, man. It's been a very hot one, man. Well, I know everybody is ready for us to get to these conversations. We've got some interesting conversations to get into today. Uh, as always, we want to give a shout out to our sponsor, uh, the Fetzer Institute, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. But it's time to get into it. So you know what to do. Grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. And let me start off with some scripture. Acts 19 verses 24 through 27 and 32 through uh, 33 say this. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis, that was a goddess, uh, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with uh, workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul, Apostle Paul, has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made with human hands are no gods at all, 
There is a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will uh, be discredited and the goddess herself, who was worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. So after saying this, uh, uh, Demetrius basically incites a riot. And, and this is what the Bible says about this riot. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Some were, shout, some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. If that isn't a fitting description of American politics today, then I don't know what is. In my opinion, we are overrun by brain dead mob politics. The amount of people I've seen screaming about issues like the overturning of Roe versus Wade and not even understanding the other side's argument is appalling. We have pastors standing in pulpits giving pro-choice sermons based on cliches and hackneyed partisan talking points. It's a clown show out there in some spaces. And I wonder after reading that scripture, Chris, I, I wonder how many people in the Acts 19 mob were there because they wanted to avoid being shamed by others. How many knew it was wrong or didn't really have strong feelings about it, but were compelled to join because they didn't have the fortitude to stand up against the mob and to stand up for what was right? It's something to think about. We see that mobs and the mob mentality certainly aren't a new phenomenon. Well, a Christian brother I met recently at Dr. Charlie Dates' Justice Summit wrote a really strong article about shame and mobs. Jack Meter from Mere Christianity recently penned an article entitled Shame. If you haven't been reading merechristianity.com, you should start. I've been reading it for a while, just got to meet Jack, uh, but, but certainly worth checking out. So here's how the article starts. He, he starts like this. He says, shame is, amongst other things, the problem of how to understand yourself and your relationship to neighbor in the aftermath of offending or hurting your neighbor. Given the fragmentation of our society, we shouldn't be surprised that no one seems to know what to do with shame. He goes on to say, for the most cynical, their superpower is their shamelessness. They can do and say anything without any inner sense of guilt or remorse. When called to repent, they rationalize, they self-justify, they mock. Morality has become little more than a political game for them. They can exploit the moral beliefs of anyone to get what they want, all the while being bound to no discernible norms themselves. When you're shameless, you don't have any rules, but your opponents do. Now, Meter did not say Trump's name in this, but it almost sounds like he is describing our former president. He goes on to say that this shame uh, game that folks are playing, this is a large part of how the progressive left has been able to transform the plausibility structures around sexuality and gender so radically over the last 25 plus years. And they've done it through the threat of shame and the related capital threats that mass shaming campaigns inevitably bring. Now, by now, I'm guessing that many of you have heard that the singer Macy Gray, who I like, the singer Macy Gray made some what I thought were very reasonable comments about how transgender women should be able to call themselves whatever they like, but that they're not biologically, 
physiologically or or experientially women, as a matter of fact. They can call themselves what they like, but when it comes to biology, physiology, and experience, as a matter of fact, they are not women. She immediately, and I'm this could be anticipated, but she immediately was attacked from the left and forced to recant and apologize. I can almost guarantee you that she still believes what she said initially, but that doesn't matter. Your public voice has to change when certain people don't like what you say. Now, as I've been watching this from not necessarily afar, but as I've been watching this, this is really how the transgender ideology movement has come so far. Not by logic, not by persuasion or by wisdom or by good sense, but by shame, cancellation and billions of dollars in marketing. The transgender ideology movement and really almost all movements today like to compare themselves to the civil rights movement. I guess it's good for branding. But in tactic and spirit, it's nothing like the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement did not use those malicious, bad faith, anti-civic pluralism tactics. No, that movement had a tenacious but loving Christian ethic. I've said this before, and I think it bears saying again, the transgender ideology movement is more like the white citizens council that economically terrorized people to promote iniquity and racism. It's much more like the White Citizens Council than the civil rights movement. It uses its money and intimidation to get its way. And a lot of our favorite leaders and influencers, unfortunately, are on the take. Now, that certainly does not mean that there aren't people who are sincere that disagree with me on that issue. That's not the point. But that movement, in my opinion, has some wickedness in it. But but I always but as I always try to tell you, that does not mean that we as Christians should disregard, discount or ignore people struggling with that issue. Many of the donors and the frontline strategists and activists are wrong, in my opinion. But we always have to see the people, the hurting people behind the activist. Christians must treat transgender people with love, respect and self-sacrifice and admit that we have not always done that in the past and it bears some correction, it bears some lament, and it bears some repentance. Now, in my opinion, that doesn't include simply going along with transgender ideology and that movement or acting like it's not a big deal. It is a big deal and Christians who don't see it right now soon will. I expect that you'll see more Christian influencers starting to use words like birthing people instead of women and chest feed instead of breastfeed. And I'd urge you not to be one of them. Chris, what are your thoughts on this article and just shaming in the mob in general? Well, I mean, it's certainly uh, one. Let me just say, I think it's a a really well uh, written and reasoned article. Uh, And this was uh, I think this was my first time. Uh, reading this particular brother, and I will be paying closer attention to his stuff, um, because this is a very important um, issue that we're dealing with in our politics, uh, and and it's really it's interesting because it's spilled over in in a lot of ways beyond our politics. I mean, Macy Gray is not a politician; it's it's dominating culture at this point, and there is a a great need one to find a way to uh, to participate in politics and culture without 
without participating in the mob first off, right? Because sometimes the the mob mentality, as as you said, uh, and, and and acts, it can it can sometimes bring folks into the mob who really don't want to be there. The only reason you're involved, uh, you're participating in the mob, is because of the shame dynamic. Uh, in, in your own life, you don't want to be found to not have been a part of the mob. Uh, so we got to find a way to be in this and not be drawn into the mob. But those of us who 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 feel called to seek areas of, of leadership uh, really in this moment have to be super introspective and very, very prayerful and try to find ways to not fall victim to the mob. Uh, and it's 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 incredibly incredibly difficult, um, but the ability to to disagree to to remonstrate to go up against sort of what's uh, seen as popular uh, is is so needful to keep our politics balanced, uh, to keep our culture balanced, um, to keep some kind of you know sort of testimony and bulwark in our world, so that you don't get a a sort of runaway um, domination in politics and a runaway domination in culture, which I do think uh, is something that is happening. I mean, when you look at uh, data, you will see that the vast majority of people um, are still like sort of wrestling through this, uh, especially this transgender conversation, not because people want to be hateful toward uh, transgender people, but it is a question that really impacts how we organize our society, really impacts a lot of different places, schools, um, impacts, uh, you know, sports, impacts, you know, a lot of things economically when you start to think about uh, business development and, um, you know, a lot of places like Chicago and places all over the country have, you know, specific programs for uh, for women and minorities. Um, so this, this is impacting a lot of places. And folks are like, Let's just think it through. I mean, this is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, I don't think people in in large swaths are are antagonistically opposed. Folks are like, let's just think it through. Um, but it's being forced to go much more quickly by a small subset of the population that is willing uh, to take part in the shaming, uh, this kind of mob action. And we need leaders who can find ways and to not only keep keep one's witness, uh, but maybe to be effective uh, in leading that way. And I, I don't know, I, I think we have great tools to help you stay uh, sort of true to your values as you lead. Um, but even I would suggest that I am still working on uh, sort of thinking through ways to be really effective um, and not only uh, not fall into one of these categories that's laid out in the article where you either cave to uh, the pressure of the mob uh, or you just become, you know, like, you know, super nihilistic about it and, and you have no shame at all. Uh, you know, how do you lead where you don't fall into one of those uh, categories, but you actually are effective in your leadership? Um, and I think that's one of the great tasks uh, in front of us. And so I appreciate the article um, for bringing bringing this question to the forefront, because I think that it is is a very, very important question for us to be wrestling with right now, because every day uh, that we that we don't have a solve, uh, the kind of crazy agendas are moving forward. Yeah, that's real. I think you make a good point. I mean, 
as Christians, as people who have accepted Christ, we don't have to live in shame. We shouldn't live in shame. But when we do something shameful, we should feel some kind of way. Right. So those, you know, there's a space and there's a tension there that we really have to have to deal with. And we should be thoughtful about these issues. We've tried to wrestle with the transgender issue in a real way. But what we're not going to do is just go along with it. And I think part of the problem that a lot of people see is they don't want to have the discussion. They don't want to be thoughtful about it because a lot of it is indefensible. And what's been interesting to me is seeing a lot more Christians who are accepting it, not based on any kind of sound argument and certainly not based on biblical bounds, but based on sentiment and and things of that nature. Now, if we get back into the article, though, I think it's important to mention that Meter, as Meter wisely points out, the shaming and the mob mentality are not just a progressive phenomenon, right? They're also not just a secular phenomenon. This is happening in the church, too, as we speak. And he he does an interesting thing. He compares what's happening on the left to what's happening in the ideologic in ideologically conservative spaces in regard to race. He explains that social media mobs, aggressive ad hominem attacks, that means against the man when you're attacking the person and not the argument and public shaming campaigns, including targeted attacks on one's livelihood, are not the exclusive property of the left. So you hear a lot of folks especially uh, more conservative folks complaining about cancel culture and all this, but that's not just coming from the left. Evangelicals in some places are doing it too. And he gives some interesting examples that really hit home. And the first one, I didn't even know. I didn't even know to think about. His first example is of Owen Strachan, uh, who is uh, an academic. I think, you know, um, he's in a lot of conservative spaces. And this is what Owen penned in 2014. This is what he said. He said, I want to learn more and listen more to African-American brothers and sisters on racial matters. It does seem that in addition to broader initiatives that may emerge in coming days, the small things matter. Calling out a racist classmate matters. Getting rid of a Confederate flag matters. Telling the truth about John Edwards, the slaveholder, matters. Looking at Strachan's tweets today. And then looking back at what he twin, penned in 2014 looks like two different people. This brother has done a 180 from that statement. He's now one of the foremost Christian influencers against anything related to racial justice. He's certainly not going to be calling out Jonathan Edwards and folks like that for slaveholding or calling out any Christians for racism, racism in general. And I think we have to ask ourselves why. Now, Meter also gives the example of Al Mohler, who in 2016 said that if he ever voted for Trump, he'd have to go back and apologize to Bill Clinton. Then he came back in 2020 and said that Christians must basically vote for Trump. Like that was the only option for a faithful Christian. Again, why is this happening? What happened here with Strachan and Mohler? Meter suggests that it's It has a lot to do with shaming and the mob mentality within Christian spaces. Here's something that happened in in, in 2018. uh, The Gospel Coalition and the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission hosted MLK 50. It was a commemoration of 50 years after the death of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. People like myself, Matt Chandler, uh, Jackie Hill Perry uh, and many others spoke about race in the church in very 
frank terms. Uh, and I actually, at the moment, Chris, I actually thought it was a, a huge step forward for the church. I thought that was a big moment. It, I thought it was a really big moment for the church on race. But after that happened, apparently, and, and Meter explains this, I didn't know all the information behind what happened, but Meter explains that after that happened, a group of folks that were led by, you know, John MacArthur and, and folks like that gathered in Dallas to discuss their concerns with social justice movements in evangelicalism, uh, which there aren't really that many strong ones, but whatever. Three months later, they presented this statement on social justice and the gospel. And I thought the statement was trash. You can go and read it for yourself. They then also kind of team up with anti-Obama filmmakers and start branding this idea of enemies within the church. And most of these enemies are simply people who talk about racial justice. Uh, they, 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 they must be Marxist because they talk about racial justice. And it's come to my attention, Chris, uh, that I am actually on one of these websites on that list as an enemy of the church for talking about American racism. OK. Now, according to Meter, the this group turned turned up the pressure on people like Al Mohler and the and Southern Seminary um, who were they say, contributing to wokeness in the church. I've never heard anything Mueller said to contribute to wokeness in the church, but apparently they put the pressure on. And the Dallas group and the online reactionary conservatives manufactured a campaign intended to reform evangelicalism by forcing its prominent leaders to either leave the movement or to effectively repent of their wokeness and take, the, and take their place in the campaign. And, and I, I hate to say it, but it was effective. You see people like Strachan, you see people like Moeller back up and really change course. And still to this day, you will get fired up on social media by the mob for simply mentioning historical facts about racism in America. The facts. Because just like any mob, they have no commitment to the truth, no commitment to charity or clarity or kindness or humility. There's only one thing that they care about, and that is winning, at least in the short term. Now, again, I, I believe that MLK, that conference, MLK 50, which was in Memphis in 2018, was a step forward. And I was hopeful after that happened. But we took some serious steps backwards with this enemies within the church foolishness. Um, and I don't think that we've recovered, Chris. Uh, and, and to me, it all comes back to fortitude and courage. Whether it's racism or whether it's transgender ideology, if we decide to look away or go along as long as it doesn't upset uh, as not to upset our peers. Right. Just go along with it because we don't want our peers to get upset with us. Then we're nothing like the early church. I want to be very clear about that. If that's the way that we go about culture and politics, we're nothing like the early church. We're nothing like the freedom fighters who put life and limb on the line to make God's will on race known to the world. If you want to take the path of least resistance, we can't do anything to stop you. If you want to engage transgender movement and transgender ideology with nothing but sentimentality and avoid the truth and avoid wisdom because it doesn't go over well at the cocktail parties that you like to attend, that's your choice. If you want to pretend that the American church hasn't been a bulwark of American racism while your black and 
uh, your black brothers and sisters still struggle and suffer, then have at it. But I think you should know that the and campaign and many others will oppose you on both accounts. Will oppose you with love and truth. Take us out, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I I will uh, step back from this because this is one. This is a a good reflection because I, I really remember uh, that um, MLK MLK fifty and how excited you were um, and how excited Charlie Charlie was uh, after that experience um, and just the hopefulness uh, that. Uh, that was coming from, from you guys. Uh, and as somebody, you know, I am a, a member of the assembly of God, uh, not, uh, involved in, in, in a lot of Baptist polity at all. Uh, but I, I remember just so many folks who were there and who, um, who saw, you know, the videos and that kind of thing. And there was a, uh, just a tremendous hopefulness, uh, there. And it was, I was thinking about that when I was reading, uh, this article and seeing how far, uh, just reflecting on how far things have come uh, in the wrong direction from that moment to this one. And uh, it pretty much is the same thing that we were just talking about. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, I, I, I do think there are other places within the church um, that is really important to point out how folks have been inviting the Justin Gibbonies and Charlie Dates uh, of the world into spaces uh, that that y'all haven't been in, that we haven't been in. Um, and as much as this has uh, taken hold, it seems, inside of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, I, I do think that uh, even individuals who uh, are part of that particular convention and in a lot of different places in the church, uh, there's probably, uh, I, I would argue, that there is more hopefulness still in the church than in any other space um, for a, a capacity to overcome this sort of uh, mob mentality and actually move forward in meaningful ways. Uh, and so while I think it is important to, uh, to point to this, this particular instance, to, to grieve it and to long for ways to correct it, uh, I, I, I think I would be uh, I, I'd be remiss if, if I don't like give a shout out to the church because as somebody who's been like super involved in like politics over the last couple of years, there there are more places of daylight, more um, sort of reasons to hope that I've seen uh, in different spaces inside of the church um, than in a lot of different places uh, in our politics, uh, in our culture, in our economy. Uh, and so I want to, I say that because I want to encourage believers who are listening, you know, to this podcast to really lean into those spaces, because I do think uh, that this is one of the places where the church has the opportunity to really be uh, salt and light uh, in a, a very dark world and in a very dark uh, sort of situation that we're talking about. But that said, this stuff does happen uh, in the church. Um, it happens in you know our sacred spaces, and we have to be very cognizant uh, of that, right? Because sometimes you can get to the place where uh, it's it's used so effectively, especially in culture and uh, in economics. This sort of mob thing is used so effectively on the left uh, that you can almost trick your mind into thinking that as long as you're not doing something that's left-leaning, then you couldn't be participating in this type of tactic. Uh, and the fact is, 
you absolutely can. Uh, and so we have to be very mindful of that. And I, and I, I love where the article goes at the end because I actually uh, agree uh, in significant ways with how the article suggests that some of this uh, gets resolved. And one of those ways that, that the article talks about uh, is that you have to have a, a, an actual group of, of friends and like personal people who you're in fellowship with that can actually keep you accountable for real. Because it's, it's not about not having accountability, uh, as you said, as I, as I have said, as the article says. It's not, a, it's not that you can never do anything wrong, that you actually should be ashamed of, that you actually should repent from, that you actually should apologize for. Because all of us do those things. Uh, but you need to surround yourself with, I would call it a friend circle, uh, you know, but it's a fellowship, it's a community of people who can and will reach out to you in the private ways that are actually prescribed in the scripture and challenge you on things, call you to repentance and give you space to actually do that. And again, this is why I think though that the church has such a, an opportunity for this moment because that stuff is real and that stuff is prescribed in the scripture and the scripture is what we, we believe in. It's what we assent to is what we are governed by. Uh, and we have real ways to navigate through this uh, so that we're not giving folks just carte blanche to do and say whatever you want to say, uh, but actually not participating in uh, the sort of mob mentality. When you really look through how the scripture walks us through this, there is actually uh, an escalating uh, sort of approach to calling somebody to correction that actually does uh, involve more and more people as it escalates. It's very orderly. Um, and if we lean more into that, we can get away from, you know, the sort of mob mentality. Uh, the, the reason we don't like to do that is because it does require thoughtfulness. Uh, it, it does ask you to, um, to make an argument from the scripture. Why, like, why Justin Gibney is an enemy of the church, right? Which is going to be a very difficult thing to do unless you're just uh, taking like a, a talking point from somebody uh, that you don't actually have to defend because you just joined the mob. Uh, and so that's why we don't like to do the private way uh, is because it actually, it involves some uh, interpersonal relationship uh, and involves some conversation. Uh, and, and it asks you to to actually argue your accusation and not just lob it out there on the internet. And as long as it gets enough, you know, likes and retweets, then it's valid. Right. Um, and, and that's where we get in trouble is when we allow sort of like the popular popularity uh, of a particular thought or way of reasoning through something to, to validate it, right? It's not validated by scripture. It's not validated based on logic. It's not validated based on science or, you know, sort of anything that we've accepted for uh, generations as how we reason through things. None of that is necessary. As long as people buy it, like it, retweet it, then it's right. Um, and we have to avoid that. Uh, and, you know, we do this in the church, but I also think at the same time, the church probably has the best opportunity to lead the culture uh, in a better way. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, one good, really good point you made is this is about relationship and accountability. It's hard to hold somebody accountable in a good way without that relationship. And so we need to keep building those relationships. You know that the AND campaign are, is always trying to build those relationships, always trying to build bridges when it comes to race relations. So this certainly isn't a uh, just to end on a negative. There certainly is hope and we're going to continue trying. But I will say this. I think the Baptist example to me was just kind of a microcosm of what was happening in the American church in general. I do think with the advent of the CRT controversy, right, critical race theory, and also with Trump, that the church in general took a step back on race. Just my opinion. I don't, you know, I can't say that for sure. I think I could make a good argument about it. But I think there was a a step back that has been taken. And in understanding that we have taken a step back maybe since 2018 with the, you know, MLK 50 event, now we can be honest about what it's going to take to take another step forward, which I think for all of us means avoiding the mob and pushing back on the mob when necessary. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, I think that's real. And I, I, I agree with you. And I, I don't want to be taken to say that I don't observe that in the whole church. Like, I, I'm not trying to uh, put, put Baptists on blast. Right? Like I, I do think this is something that has taken place in the whole church. Um, but I, I just I urge us to not walk away from the church because of that, right? Like we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Holy Scriptures. Uh, and I do think we have um, comparatively more people. There, there are more Justin Gibneys and Charlie Dateses and um, uh, those types of folks that I have interacted with in the church, you know, sort of per capita, if you will. Uh, certainly than I have in, in most of the political spaces. Uh, where I've been uh, doing that work. And I, but, but it is a call to urgency. Like I said, like every day that we don't lean into that moment as the church, uh, this, this is getting deeper into the church uh, and is running away further and further with our culture. And so it's, it's a moment for us. And I think we have the right raw material, if you will, the Holy spirit, the scriptures, uh, the fellowship that we do have um, to really get it right in the church and by doing that demonstrate how we could possibly get it right in the culture. That's good. There is a mob on the left and on the right and very much like Paul, we need to be telling them that their, their false gods are made, but with human hands and are not gods at all. We'll be right back on the church politics podcast. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's union gospel mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. And we are 
back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. Well, there's some polls that came out recently, uh, Chris, uh, with some, I would say, troubling results, at least if you're Joe Biden and and Democrats, uh, in a poll conducted by uh, the New York Times and Siena College Research Institute. Biden beats Trump in 2024. So that's the good part for folks who are on that side of the conversation. He beats him by three points. But 64 percent of Democrats, almost two thirds of Democrats, want someone other than Biden to run in 2024. 64%. That is great. Like that's almost unheard of for an incumbent. That's 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 crazy. Um only 24% want Biden. 94% of Democrats under the age of 30 want someone other than Biden. A third of them said it was because of age. Then you have his approval numbers. His job approval disapproval number is almost at it's at 58 percent, almost 58 percent. Somebody mentioned that his disapproval is higher than Trump's disapproval after January 6th. This is crazy. This is this is really, really crazy. And the question, you know, tell me what you think about those numbers, but also what do the Democrats do if you get rid if it's not Biden, then who? Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris is almost might be even less favorable. Her favorability might even be less than Biden's. If y'all bring somebody like uh, Secretary Pete Buttigieg, you might as well not even run. Where do they go? The bench seems like it should be deep, but it's not. What do you take from these numbers? Where do, where do they go from here? I mean, it is a. It's a very, very difficult uh, situation, I think, for the party at the national level, because I would say even even though the poll right now has uh, Biden beating Trump, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a huge victory. And that's before a campaign t- has taken place. Um, the uh, that situation where a third of folks are saying that is because uh, Joe Biden is too old. I think it's because Joe Biden uh, appears to be um, unable to lead the country uh, in this moment. Um, and everything else sort of flows out of that. The uh, the inability, unwillingness, or... But Chris, we kind of knew that before the vote. Like a lot of people didn't admit it. You weren't, you know, folks weren't supposed to talk about it, but it wasn't like during the campaign, he was the most, you know, uh, lively candidate that there was. It was, it was just a lack of other candidates that people either thought could beat Trump or that they even wanted to be in office. Yeah. And I, I, I think that it was a, it was a calculated risk that I think turned out to be uh, a mistake uh, because now you have the only person uh, in the, the national party that has a shot at beating Donald Trump. And that's if it's Donald Trump, right? Like if it's, if it's Ron DeSantis, forget about it, right? Um, but the only person who you've got is a person who is just probably not going to be up to a campaign because this campaign is, you know, more than likely not going to take place in the middle of a pandemic. Like you're going to have to get out there and hold rallies and uh, go talk to folks and, and diners and actually campaign. Um, and you just don't have a person who's going to be ready to do that. And then you're going to be campaigning unless something shifts 
dramatically. You're going to be campaigning on this message of telling folks that, like, we got the strongest economy in the history of the world and um, everything is going to be all right. And there's no reason to think that there's going to be an inflation, uh, you know, or a recession, rather. Uh, and that runs so diametrically opposed to what people are experiencing in their uh, sort of daily life. Everything uh, is way more expensive than it used to be. And most of the people in America are not economists. They just know that everything is too expensive. Uh, you're going to be trying to convince people that, uh, you know, that, you know, this legislation uh, that we're trying to, you know, throw on the Congress floor that, you know, is way, way more radical on abortion than Roe v. Wade ever was. Uh, but like, that's the way they have to go. And that's the most important thing. And you're trying to force feed people uh, this sort of reframed uh, uh gender conversation and it's just so many things that you're trying to convince people that the world is different than what they experience every day uh and that's hard enough if you have a very talented uh politician and when you don't have one available to you which right now the democratic party doesn't uh it's you know it's, it's hard because joe biden is probably the best that the party can do and that is really bad because Joe Biden doesn't set up to fare well in a presidential campaign. And then the party, I mean, you have folks in your own party who are basically now they smell blood in the water. So they, they're attacking. You have dudes like Gavin Newsom, who's a, a governor of California, who's out there talking about he might run, which if again, if you run Gavin Newsom, you might as well just just let it go. Yeah. You got your governor. I heard your governor in, in like JB is, you know, it's, it's like, you know, and, and the reason people are looking at JB Pritzker for governor, I mean, for, for president is because he can put a sentence together and, you know, he can, you know, sort of run a state, not necessarily improve it real much, but it didn't fall apart. And that's enough right now to like qualify as a you, legitimate yeah. presidential contender. But if you look at him and Newsom on the issues and really get into the issues and their record on their issues and how their state is necessarily doing on some of those issues, especially when it comes to the economy, things like that. Boy, if that's your, you know, if, <laughs> if that's the best you got, you're in trouble. But it shows that folks are coming out like, hey, man, Biden's a wrap. We're about to attack and, and take this opportunity to, you know, get as much press as we can. I think. I do think there's some talent there. I don't think it's the it's the Gavins and it's the Pritzkers who are going to be loud or who are going to be out, you know, be out there. I think it's I think it's folks like, you know, the governor in Colorado. I think it's uh, John Bell Edwards in Louisiana. Those governors are probably the people you're going to want to push forward. But when it comes to somebody like John Bell Edwards, you got the whole social side of it. He's pro-life. They're not going to want to, you know, to put him up there. But he's actually somebody who is governing a conservative state and, and, and is a Democrat. But you, you, you just probably wouldn't get the chance to even be considered in a Democratic primary. This is a very serious problem. You have issues where they're trying to even when they're trying to show that the president has some vitality, he's riding a bike, he falls off the bike. He has these moments where he just can't you know, read the screen or he says stuff that makes absolutely no sense. I don't know how you begin to recover from that, especially when it seems like and I see I think some of the criticism is unfair. I mean, we did have COVID. We had a lot of stuff go on that we're not going to have a perfect economy, even if Trump's in office or anybody else is in office right now. Like, let's be honest. But his decision making and willingness to actually say, no, this has to get done and pursuing it that way. It just doesn't seem to be there. And then the whole thing about trying to blame this on the you know Putin's inflation or whatever. 
nobody is buying that stuff. Yeah, nobody's trying to push those narratives. And and he's not a good salesman because I mean I think one of the biggest things, like you said, the the economy can't be laid completely at the feet of the president. But the lack of decision making uh, has made it worse. The the bad decision making has made it worse. But I think what people see is the inability to actually lead the conversation, like to be out there on a very regular basis, you know, engaging with the press, giving speeches, talking to the American people. Being authoritative. Yeah. Like, seeming like you know what you're talking about and we can trust you. Yeah. I mean, and and I, I would suggest because we're sitting here, um, you know, relatively young guys. And I think it's important to point out that in that poll, the group with the most concern about uh, the president's age is actually senior citizens, right? So it's not a bunch of young people saying this dude's too old for office. It's people who have actually lived a life, worked careers, raised families, and are in that same age group who are saying like, hey, there comes a point where you cannot do uh, all the things you used to do. I love, so my, my father in the faith, um, you know, who's, in his 70s, uh, he, he likes to say, uh, he says, you know, I can do everything that I used to do. I just can't do it uh, for as long and I can't do it as often. <laughs> um, you know, and, and so people in his own age group get that. Uh, and it, it is it is trouble uh, for the, the Democratic presidential ticket. I mean, these numbers are awful. Um I, I don't know any other way to put it. So y'all go look at the numbers for yourself. You don't just have to take our word for it. But very interesting conversation and something that the Biden administration and Democrats in general are going to have to figure out and quickly. We'll be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction, the And Campaign's guide to faithful civic engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility. This is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. We are back on the Church Politics Podcast, and again, we are talking about polls. Um, And again, there's some interesting polls out there. Again, the New York Times recently commissioned a poll, and one of the questions that it asked was, what Americans felt was the most important problem facing the country right now? What's the most important problem facing us today? And let me give you a list. The, The top three were this. The first was the economy. And that includes jobs and it includes the stock market, right? People see the economy falling apart and you're not going to be able to blame it on some other country for that. Number two, Chris, was inflation and cost of living. Obviously, these two things are related. 
35% of those of all the respondents to this poll said that the economy or inflation and cost of living was the number one problem facing America right now. That is significant. So for all those who are running for office, as James Carville once said, it's the economy, stupid. People are worried about the economy. And again, it's one of those situations where you can't fix it very quickly. It's not just going to everything's not just going to change immediately. So you got to figure out what you do when you're in that position. Number three, Chris, is the state of the democracy and political division. And I think that is a very legitimate concern that you and I talk about quite a bit. Right. The state of the democracy and political division. Um, Now, some would say, Chris, that the people who have this worry that came in third is really on account of January 6th hearings. And that may play a role in it. But don't be so sure, because when I look a little further down the poll, right, it says that more people think that Biden and the Democrats are the problem than they think Trump and the Republicans are the problem. So you got Biden being the problem at number six, Trump being the problem at number 10. I've been telling people that these hearings aren't going to be as fruitful as people as some people think they are. And honestly, for better or worse, probably more most likely for worse. People have moved on. And that's unfortunate because something like this could happen again. And it was not an insignificant issue, but people just aren't focused on it. I think people who think Trump had a part in it, they already know that they already expect the worst from him. Every all the information that's coming out on it, I don't think while it can be a little surprising for a day or so or whatever, I just don't think people are focused on it because they're focused on putting food on the table. They're focused on why gas is so high and so on. After those first three, we have gun policies coming in at number four with about 10 percent of the respondents saying gun policies were the biggest problem. And then at five, number five, you have abortion with just five percent, not an insignificant number. But after the overturning of Roe versus Wade, you might think that abortion would have been in that top three, Uh, but it's not. So we'll see if that plays as big as a role in the upcoming election as some on the left hope that it does. Some other numbers that you'll see is that racism was number nine. Only two percent of the elect of those respondents thought that was the biggest problem. And climate change was at 17 with just about one percent of people saying that was the biggest problem that we're facing right now. Chris, what do you take from these numbers and what should Christians be thinking about, you know, um, when when they're when they're talking about the biggest problems that we're facing what what's what's in play here yeah i mean i'm i'm not terribly surprised by these uh numbers we we did a poll in the uh in the first congressional district early in the campaign it's probably may or june of 2021 um and you know things were not so bad economically at that time and uh that uh question about uh, the state of our democracy was number one uh, in that poll. And, you know, there were no January 6th commission uh, meetings, probably not even a commission at that time. Uh, and I think that people are beginning to see that uh, even on the economy, like people are more concerned about the economy because the economy is touching your life every day. And uh, you already referenced James Carville. Uh, every election, the economy plays a significant role. 
Uh, but it is, I think it's, it's very telling that right up under that is this idea of the state of the economy, of the democracy. Cause I think people are realizing that there is sort of a bipartisan uh, consensus to be broken, right? Like we, we just talked about uh, in the earlier segment, how um, this sort of mob mentality and the control of folks who are shameless and those who are willing to use shame uh, to weaponize shame to get their way. Uh, has dominated so much on the left, dominated so much on the right. And uh, pe- people just see that, like, our government's not working to, like, do the very basic things. Uh, and it has a, a large, uh, it's, it's due in large part to our inability to, like, have a conversation, to do anything. Uh, there was a time uh, in uh, in the United States in in which the... You know, the art of politics has always been a little bit performative, um, but there was a separate art of governance that was more the art of the possible. And it was about getting together and doing what can be done to make, uh, you know, life at least somewhat easier and better for uh, a particular constituency of people. Uh, and that was that was the sort of like internal stuff of government. It was who is your constituency and how are we going to make these things work? But right now, government is 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 almost not functioning at all. Right. So it's, it's being completely controlled by those cultural um, dynamics, by the sort of financial interest. Uh, and, and there's no there's no like statesmanship and governance. And I think people are beginning to see that. Without that, uh, these uh, sort of other components of, of the sort of society are completely unchecked, right? So uh, those financial interests have always been there, but government was there to check it a little bit. Those um, uh, even cultural headwinds, not as strong, but they've always sort of been there. But there have been things in government uh, to help keep that in check. and. Government seems to not have that ability uh, right now, and especially working people have always had to look to government um, to to check those other forces because that's sort of where you had the most power, right? Like as a as a working class family, you don't have a whole lot of power uh, to impact uh, sort of like the financiers and the economic interest and all that type of stuff. You you aren't famous. You're not a tastemaker. You don't get um, you know, to, to do those things, but you can form, uh, you know, sort of citizens organizations, you can vote, you can be involved, you can call your congressperson. And now none of that seems to matter. Uh, and I think that serious people are becoming more and more aware that that part's broken. Um, and it's, it's, it's good that it's right below, or at least it's not surprising to me that it's right below the economy because just beyond being able to say something intelligent about the economy, and I would even say in how we uh, talk about the economy, the ability to actually talk about how we're going to get beyond this stuck place uh, is something that I think would be very appealing to, uh, to a large swath of voters. Um, but can you actually ever get the right kind of money and, and sort of like party infrastructure behind that type of message? I don't know. Uh, and it leaves me in a place with the rest of the people in that poll being very concerned about the state of our democracy. 
Yeah, you have to be concerned about. It. I mean, you can almost not you almost have to not be paying attention not to be concerned about democracy at all. And again, I, it doesn't look like based on the rest of the poll, it doesn't look like it's something that just hits against Republicans in January 6th. It, it looks like just a more general um, concern that needs to be fixed. So, so much to learn from these polls. The economy is a big issue. It doesn't seem to be getting be- better anytime soon. You even heard Jelen Ye- Janet Yellen say, yeah, I, I just, you know, when it came to inflation, there was just some things I didn't know. I'm going to shout out some of our Republican brothers and sisters who said they that they that the administration was going to overheat the economy. That was something that that was predicted. The inflation was predicted by a lot of folks. You can agree or disagree. I think it needs to be said. And now you do have even some of the you know, Federal Reserve and even some of the president's economic folks saying, well, we didn't know exactly what was going to happen and all that. But it did happen. And there were people who called it out. And uh, I think that needs to be acknowledged right now because it is a very serious problem. I mean, even with the cars that we drive and who drives what and and when it's impacting, you know, it's impacting families every day, including mine, of how we go about everyday things. What do you buy at the at the grocery store? Uh, All that is impacted. And when people are getting hit like that, that directly, it's a problem. And it's showing up in the polls. It's showing up in people's commentary and the way that they're looking at our politics. Yeah. And I, I think we have to be real uh, aware of it as 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 believers, how this is touching people, because um, it you know it depends on where you were uh, already. But like you said, like we we just this morning, uh, Aziza and I were getting ready for the day. I was getting some stuff together uh, for for the cleaners and. We usually take our, you know, a lot of our shirts to the cleaners, but we were like, you know, we're going to, you know, we're just going to wash our shirts at home and press them, you know, at home. And and it was completely about, you know, the prices that the cleaners went up. And that's probably because, you know, them trying to get parts and chemicals and all the stuff that they need to do their work. Uh, so this is impacting folks uh, at a... Uh, at a real serious day-to-day level. Um, and as, as the church, we should be ready both in our, um, you know, I, I think the place where, where we can be known to shine, right. Which is in our compassion ministries, right. Being able to help folks, um, you know, in, in those types of ways. But I think also our civic witness, uh, needs to be, we need to get that prepared, uh, so that we don't, um, so that we don't just accept performance and platitude from uh, the folks who are going to be seeking to represent us uh, in in government over this prime this uh, 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 midterm season, that we actually ask real questions uh, and demand some real solutions. Uh, there's a, a a lot to discuss, um, you know, about how we do that, but we need to make sure that we're forcing that conversation and not just. Um, been completely partisan or given into that mob mentality or allowing folks to placate us uh, with just, you know, sort of talking points and, 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 and platitudes. And we need to talk about the supply chain issue so I can get some AC in my house. Most important. That's, that's number one. (laughs) Well, y'all know what it is, man. Thank you for joining us. If you ever want to give to the and campaign, you can do so at andcampaign.org. You can give to uh, this particular podcast if you go to patreon.com slash church politics. Become a part of the movement. Don't just watch what we're doing. 
We're all called to engage. Let's engage in a real way and try to bring about some change. We can't just sit here and complain. You have an opportunity to join the movement. Please do it. As usual, AnCamp, there is a cross that neither uh, political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, AnCamp. I'll let you. Oh, Lord, I said, King.